Well, if you would please join me in God's word in Malachi chapter 3. If you're not sure where the book of Malachi is, uh, just start at the beginning of the New Testament with Matthew and turn back a couple pages. It's the very last book of the Old Testament. We'll be in chapter 3, verses 6 through 12 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Please pray with me once again. Lord, on that theme of your ultimate sovereignty, I recognize this morning that I am nothing, that our supreme authority in this place is your word. So would you get me out of the way, Lord? Would your spirit move through your word to transform and conform us into the image of Christ? Would you speak directly to our hearts? that we may be stirred towards worship that is in spirit and in truth, in reverence and in awe, and that above all, Lord, your name would be lifted high in this place. Amen. Have you ever had a memory that was proven to be false? Perhaps it was a story that you've told uh, over time in like the game of telephone. Each time you tell it, it's just a little bit different until at the end of things, it comes to be something that happened quite differently than how it originally happened. For instance, I have a vivid memory of me being pushed into the pool when I was a child uh, by my oldest sister and left there to drown. It wasn't until a few years ago that I confronted my sister about this memory I had, and she cleared things up a little bit. Uh, It turns out that, according to her and everyone else that was present at this event, um, I had actually walked right into the pool myself, and she was the one to jump in and save me. And so the way I remembered things was simply wrong. I'd carried around this belief for years that my sister actually tried to drown me. I'm sure many of you have memories that have changed similarly over time. 
because our memories are precarious things, aren't they? Our ability to retain knowledge and things that happen in the past is ever fading. And our, our very perception of events and how they happen shifts from day to day. This is a fact about human beings that we are forgetful. We're always changing. And we, when we look at this particular text in the prophecy of Malachi, we realize that the same is true about ancient Israel. In fact, throughout this entire book, uh, there's given example after example of how these people have failed to remember who they are and what they're called to believe. They even forget their own history. So if you would, for just a moment, turn back to the beginning of Malachi, to chapter 1, verse 2. And you'll notice here uh, a specific style that the prophet employs, uh, which is an open dialogue between the Lord and the people of Israel. This is something that he repeats throughout his prophecy, and we'll see it in our own text as well in chapter 3. But first, in chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord declares, I have loved you. And the people respond, how have you loved us? I think it's very clear from this first interaction that Israel had forgotten a important fundamental aspect of their identity. They don't remember all that God had done for them, how he had chosen them from among the nations as the object of his covenant love, how he had led them into an inheritance and how he had made them a blessed people. But that's not the only thing they've forgotten. If you turn one more page to chapter 2 and verse 17, another moment of dialogue here, the prophet says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? So Israel is forgetful, even of the way their words and actions have dishonored God. Malachi tells us uh, throughout his prophecy, uh, uh, he gives a few examples of how they have disobeyed God. And he says that they have been guilty of bringing impure sacrifices to the temple, bringing animals that are blind, sick, lame, and mutilated. They do this and they assume that God somehow won't notice that they are giving him the absolute worst, that they're giving him the scraps in their worship. Malachi also mentions that the men of Israel have been faithless in their marriages. They've been divorcing the wives of their youth and going off and marrying women from foreign nations. And this has led to the adoption of many pagan religious practices, which has further corrupted Israel's worship. And so Israel has actively disobeyed God's commands in these ways. They forget that he has removed his favor from them, not because he doesn't love them anymore, but because they have persistently sinned against the covenant. And so they find themselves in their current predicament. And what is their current predicament? Well, just to give you some historical context, the prophecy of Malachi is post-exilic, which means that it comes after Israel's time as captives in Babylon. The Persians have come and conquered over the Babylonian empire and King Cyrus has allowed the Jews to return to their homeland. It's at this time that they've even been granted a great degree of religious freedom. The Persian King Cyrus issued an order for the temple to be rebuilt. 
and the Jews were once again able to engage in sacrificial worship in their own city. But in this arrangement, Israel remains discontented. They resent being under the authority of the Persians, even though these new masters are a lot more lenient than the Babylonians were. And to add to their problems, they're experiencing a famine. Their harvest had no yield. The crops were dying in the field due to drought and to locusts and other pests that were devouring them before they could be harvested. And who does Israel blame? But God for their lack of prosperity. Just as I blamed my sister for pushing me in the pool, even though I had willfully walked into it, they blame God for their circumstances, even though they had willfully lived in disobedience to his commands. But now, as we come to chapter 3, verse 6, God sets the record straight. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God is unchanging in his love towards his people, which is clear in the fact that they have not been consumed. They haven't been destroyed, but they continue to exist as members of his covenant community. And so this morning, it's, it's in this covenant relationship between God and the children of Jacob, his people, that we find the theme of our text. And I want us to consider both of these parties in turn. So we'll begin by considering the waywardness of Israel. Then we will think and ponder the unchanging, immutable God. And so first, let's think about how Israel has become wayward. And when I describe them as wayward, I don't mean that they are just a little bit off track. I mean that they have veered way off course. They are stubborn unrepenting, blind to their sin. And we see this on display as we continue in our text in verse seven. The Lord says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Listen to this. You say, how shall we return? We can understand two things of significance here at the beginning. The first, that God in his omniscience has retained a full account of Israel's wrongdoing. No instance of sin or rebellion goes unaccounted for in his memory. He remembers all. But in contrast, Israel doesn't seem to remember much of anything. For when God beckons them saying, return to me and I will return to you, they respond with how? Should we return? They ask this question as if they had not heard the voices of the prophets that came before Malachi, as if that had not been enough to remind them what was required for their repentance. But it's not that God hadn't provided instruction for them on how to return, for he had sent messenger after messenger after messenger to regain their attention. What's on display here in Israel's question is that they simply did not recognize any real need for their repentance. Their question is not one of genuine interest, but of total ignorance. They had become debilitated in their recognition of sin and its effects on their lives. They genuinely didn't see how they had done anything wrong, but how could this be? 
Well, I think part of the problem is, is shown back in chapter 2. Malachi, in the first nine verses of chapter 2, addresses the priesthood specifically, the ones who have been charged with delivering and teaching the law to the people. So Malachi says to the priests in verse 8 of chapter 2, that you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. So those who had been tasked with instructing Israel in the way of righteous obedience had failed in their duty. And because of this lack of true teaching in their lives, Israel had strayed far from what God had called them to believe. They even went so far as to say in chapter 2, verse 17, that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. They'd become so blinded to the holy nature of God that they actually believed that evil was good in his eyes. Their entire perception of him had been skewed. And instead of viewing him as holy, they, they claimed that he delighted in wickedness. Instead of praising him for his steadfast, enduring faithfulness through the ages, they have to be reminded that I, the Lord, do not change. And so Israel's spiritual blindness made it so that they could no longer discern the difference between truth and error. They were still the people of God's covenant, but they acted as though they'd never been set apart. They were almost indistinguishable from the pagan nations that surrounded them. And then as we look Forward into verses 8 and 9 of our text, we'll notice that Malachi does not shy away from telling them how they are the ones at fault, not God. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Of course, I think... When we consider that question, will man rob God? It's outrageous, isn't it? When you consider the infinite gap that exists between God and man, God being the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, and man being a mere creation, a mere creature. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world, and those who dwell therein. As the world's maker, God owns the right to every single thing that's found in man's temporary possession. And so how could he possibly be robbed? Well, the Lord answers his own question when he tells exactly how Israel's been robbing him. He points to how they had neglected an important aspect of their worship, which was the tithe. The Hebrew word for tithe literally means tenth. This practice of giving a tenth of one's possessions was common ever since the time of Abraham. We see in Genesis 14 that Abraham gives a tenth of all of his spoils to the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Then later on in Genesis 28, Jacob makes a vow to God at Bethel saying, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. But it wasn't until the Mosaic law was instituted that the tithe became mandatory. In Leviticus 27.30, we read that every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. 
So the Israelites were commanded to bring a tenth of all produce and give it to the Lord. It is the Lord's. By failing to bring the tithes to the Lord's house, they were taking from the Lord what was rightfully his. But what exactly would God stand to receive from the tithe? I think that's a question worth considering this morning. What would he actually gain from this arrangement? Deuteronomy 14 verses 22 through 23 answers this question. For it says, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord, your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock. Listen to this. That you may learn to fear the Lord, your God, always. So God would receive no benefit from the tithe other than his people would be taught to fear him. In the end, they would be the ones to consume it, but it would be in the place of his own choosing as worship unto the giver of all things. And so it's not that God needs their tithe. It's that the tithe was a specific means by which Israel was called to worship him. It was yet another way for them to give him the honor that he deserved. And if there is one recurring theme throughout the prophecy of Malachi, it is this, that the prophet is calling on God's people to give him reverence and honor. In chapter one, verse six, the Lord says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? And the focus in our text this morning is yet again on Israel's obligation to worship God in reverence. Their apathy is is on full display as they rob God of what is rightfully his. They don't fear him. By their actions, they prove that they don't think he's worthy of their tribute. And so what's God's response to this lack of holy fear? He issues a curse. And notice in verse 9 that he, he does not say they will be cursed, but that they are cursed in the present tense. So in the context of verses 11 and 12, we can understand this curse to simply mean that they lack a harvest. Since Israel was disobedient in regards to the covenant, God withheld those covenant blessings. He dried up their fields and caused the vine to fail to bear fruit. I think if even a few thousand years later, we can still relate to Israel's struggle here. Of course, there are some major differences between the agricultural business in ancient Israel and what it is today. For we have a lot by way of protecting crops as they grow. And, and you know, if some disaster does happen, there's always crop insurance. <laughs> Not to mention just how far technology has come in recent years that minimize certain risks that come with farming. There are so many things that are now much more under your control than they were in the time of Israel. But ultimately, we still understand that if there's no rain, the hard will be ground and the crops will fail. There's a great measure of dependence on external factors when it comes to farming as your primary source of income. So no wonder Israel was so reluctant to bring the full tithe to the Lord's house. I mean, why should they give to God a full tenth of all they had when they were struggling to feed their families? 
He's the one who's supposed to be providing for them, right? They can't seriously be expected to bring the tithe when they don't even have enough for themselves. But do you see how backwards that thinking is? Instead of trusting in God's provision, they were stingy, holding back from bringing the tithe because they believed that they couldn't afford it. They had forgotten that the same God that was calling them to return was the God that controlled the sun and the rain and all means of production. He was the same God that made water burst from the rock and made manna rain down from heaven. He not only has the ability, the power to provide for them, but he has a special desire to bless them as his chosen people. Yet they view their struggles as God having forsaken them. They believe that he no longer intends to provide. And of course, they believe wrongly. The blindness of their sin has led them to a false belief. They are truly a wayward people. So as we've considered the waywardness of Israel, how they were spiritually blinded to the effects of their sin and how they willfully walked in disobedience to God's commands, I want us to move on and now consider God's immutability, which is his unchanging nature. Because if there is one truth worth championing in an age where everything is constantly changing in all realms of life, it is the fact that God himself does not change. He is a solid rock. Though the seas around him rise and fall, he remains the same. To give you kind of a window into modern evangelical thought on this specific aspect of God's nature. Ligonier and Lifeway came out with this joint survey last year uh, that sought to convey the state of theological beliefs amongst evangelicals in our country. And in this survey, they provided an alarming statistic. When asked whether or not they agree with the following statement that God learns and adapts to different circumstances, 48% of evangelicals Agreed. In other words, nearly half of the evangelicals in our country believe that God changes, that he learns and adapts to new information. Can you imagine the uncertainty when you pray to a God that like a chameleon changes according to every single petition? Maybe you ask for mercy one day, he grants it to you, but the next day he doesn't. No, that is not the God of the Bible. We know from the Psalms, from Psalm 118, that John read that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Lamentations 3 again says that his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. The epistle of James tells us that he is one with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the immutability of God is revealed all throughout scripture in regards to his attributes. But here in Malachi chapter three, we'll see that this aspect of God's character is proven in the very way he relates to his children. It gets personal. Despite all of that Israel had done to slander his name in questioning his love in, in refusing him the honor that he deserves. 
what does God say to them? Return to me, and I will return to you. At this point, God is well within his rights to say, you've had your chance, but we're done now. We're over. In verse 7, he even widens the scope of their transgression to include all of the times that Israel has backslid into disobedience. It says, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside. But he doesn't abandon them. He gives them yet another opportunity to return, to repent. He expresses his ongoing desire for the relationship between him and Israel to be restored. And then in verses 10 through 12, this covenant renewal between God and his chosen people is given in concrete terms. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord here issues a challenge. He says, bring your tithes and your contributions and watch as I open the floodgates and pour out my abundant blessing upon your lives. He's eager to be tested in this. I think for those of us here who have a more competitive side, which isn't me, I'm sure some of you do, but um, I think we can relate to what's going on here. If you ask my wife, you'll know that's not true. I'm very competitive. So I just want you for a moment to imagine that you are the greatest ping pong player in the world. You're like a multiple gold medal winning champion. You have all these trophies in your heart to, as a testimony to the fact that you are, in fact, the best. But you have one friend who goes around saying, hmm, that guy says he's the best at ping pong, but I'm better. And you know, I bet I could beat him any day of the week. Of course, he's not foolish enough to say that to your face, but you hear about it through the grapevine. And what's your response going to be? Let's go! Name a time and a place. Let's make this event. Bring all of your friends and let them watch as I destroy you in ping pong. Of course, that illustration only goes so far. God has no need to compete. He doesn't need to prove himself to anybody. But his own people have gone around and said that God isn't actually good. In fact, he delights in evil. His blessings have all dried up for us. He no longer intends to take care of us. So what does he say? Put me to the test. He wants to prove how unchanging he is in his desire to shower his children with blessing and favor. He wants to show that he not only has the power to fulfill his promises, but that he will go above and beyond in order to eliminate all need and insufficiency in their daily lives. So he invites them to take a risk. Bring a tenth of what little you have and watch as I return it to you a hundredfold. No longer will the nation scoff at them. 
for they will be a land of plenty. So much will their yield increase that the pagans will once again be forced to recognize them as God's favored ones. That shame they experienced in exile will be turned to abundant joy as the covenant between God and his people is renewed. Once again, they will obey his commands and he will bless them. Friends, the fact that the Lord is still bent on covenant renewal, even as he disciplines his children for their disobedience, it's just a testament to his unchanging grace. Now, many people think that God's grace began when Jesus entered the scene. They think that somehow, some way in those 400 years between the prophecy of Malachi and the dawn of the New Testament with the gospel of Matthew, sometime in there, God changed from being vindictive, angry, wrathful to being full of grace and love and compassion. But what we see here in Malachi chapter 3 is that God has always been gracious. Israel was a wayward son, blinded by sin, backsliding into faithlessness again and again and again. And yet God still extends his hand in grace to say, return to me and I will return to you. If that is not the essence of the gospel, I don't know what it is. For as Paul writes, it was while we were dead in our trespasses and sins that we were given life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It was when we were broken down, blinded, unable to help ourselves, that God stooped down and saved us by his grace. Friends, you may be sitting here this morning Burdened by those sins that you've committed, even maybe over the course of the last week. You may be overwhelmed by your own grief and shame over these things. But I urge you to remember this that in despite of all those mistakes you've made, you cannot outsin God's mercy. The blood of Christ was shed to cover each and every one of those sins. And our beautiful, gentle, loving, compassionate Savior has these words for you. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Such unchanging mercy for those who are in Christ. But if you're here this morning and you have yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ because you think your sin is too much for his sacrifice to pay for, then hear this. There will never be a point in time in which you will have cleaned yourself up enough to receive this mercy. There's no work you can do to eliminate or remove that stain of sin on your life. There is one who lived a perfect life that you could not live and died the death that you deserve, also that your sins would be forgiven and that you might have eternal life. So I urge you, come before him in faith today. Repent of your sin and place your hope and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Turn to him, he who is gentle and lowly, whose yoke is easy and burden is light. He will not cast you aside. He will receive you with open arms. Now that we've thought about Israel's waywardness, 
and we've contrasted that with God's unchanging nature, there's just a few ways I'd like to apply this text in our daily lives. And the first application is this, that all of God's children are susceptible to spiritual backsliding. We today are in no less danger of succumbing to spiritual blindness as the people of Israel, Israel were in the time of Malachi. Our tendency to forget what is true and to neglect God's commands is ingrained in us as a result of our own sinful nature. This is why the Christian life, by necessity, is a life of action. The Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, to train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. For to this end, we toil and strive, for we have set our hope on the living God. Once you are saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you are set apart to pursue a higher calling. This involves more than just going to church or praying before every meal. It requires the routine practice of certain spiritual disciplines. Say one day you decide that you want to shed some weight uh, or, or get more fit. What do you do? Do you go for a 10-minute jog? And then you come back and say, that's it. I'm healthy now. I've done it. No, you come up with a plan. You establish a routine of exercise and, and you stick to it. You have to train yourself. You have to adopt new habits in order to get where you want to go. And the same is true for training in godliness. The Christian life is not a life of passivity. We're called to toil and to strive to live out the gospel in our daily lives. To be passive in these things is, is not to remain neutral not to remain the same. You're either moving forward in the call to obedience or you're moving backwards. If you do not train yourself in godliness, there will begin to form inevitable blind spots that will cause you to stumble. You'll find it more and more difficult to discern your own sin and, and your need for repentance. But God's grace has accounted even for this. For he has given us his spirit to strengthen and guide us as we seek to grow in maturity in our walk with Christ. So be encouraged that you have a helper, one who can and does help you resist this inclination to backslide. And he has also blessed us with his church, with that great gift of Christian accountability. So go to your brothers and sisters in Christ and ask for aid. Do not forsake this public gathering of the saints, but recognize that it is within this context of corporate worship that we are reminded of who we are in Christ and what we are called to do in order to obey him. So that is our first application, that all of God's children are susceptible to spiritual backsliding. And our second application is this, that all of God's children are called to live with sacrificial generosity. One spiritual discipline that we should desire to see continual, persistent growth in is that of giving. And I know that oftentimes we don't view giving as, as 
a spiritual discipline, but we view it more as an obligation. Certainly, many in Israel in the time of Malachi would have viewed their giving this way. Rather than an exercise of worship, they thought of giving as a restriction, a drain on their resources. But for God's children, this ought not be so. Giving for us is an opportunity to show honor God to God. Ascribing to the Lord the glory due his name extends not just to our words, but to our wallets as well. If you do indeed fear God, that fear will prove itself through the practical means such as giving. And of course, we're no longer required to bring those specific tithes and contributions that Israel was commanded to bring. And and that instant material prosperity that God promised to reward them with is not something that we can lay claim to. But does that mean that we have no New Testament imperative to give? And if so, that God does not bless a cheerful giver? By no means. The New Testament may not prescribe to us a specific amount that we are to give, but we are still implored to give. The difference is that the standard of measurement for our giving is is not external. It's not a dollar amount, but it's internal. It's, it's It's measured by the depth of love you have for God and his church. Paul articulates this in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 8. After he encourages his readers to be generous, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So this encouragement to live with sacrificial generosity puts to the test our commitment to love God and to love our neighbor. The reality is that if you have a genuine love for God and for your brothers and sisters in Christ, you will find yourself quick to expend your time and your money and your energy all for their sake. You will seek out opportunities to invest your resources into their lives, both for their physical and spiritual good. And you can be sure that God blesses this kind of giving. It might not be the kind of blessing that you would expect. For in 2 Corinthians 9.11, Paul writes, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. It may sound strange, but the greatest blessing that we stand to receive when we live out this call to be sacrificial in our giving is the blessing of gratitude. For when we are generous, the hearts of God's people are turned towards him in thanksgiving. We recognize that our giving is a mere reflection of all that he has given to us. And this causes us to worship. So this is that doxological side of our giving, that it produces thankfulness in our hearts to God. And as a result, he receives the glory due his name. There's a reason so many of the Psalms are Psalms of thanksgiving. God's desire is that his people would enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Our worship should be so steeped in gratitude towards him that it characterizes every aspect of our corporate gathering. We should sing songs of thanksgiving, pray prayers of thanksgiving, all the while joyfully obeying this call 
to give back to the one who daily blesses us. So that is our second application. The third and final application is this, that all of God's children can have an assurance of their salvation. The thing that I love about this passage in Malachi is that God's immutability is stated not just in terms of his attributes, but to his promises. The children of Jacob are not destroyed simply because God's promises remain true. His words never fail. Psalm 33, 11 says that the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. His purposes are set in stone. They are unable to be usurped or upended by any work of man. He does not change his mind mid-course, nor does he reconsider his actions on the basis of, of new information. He has no need to adapt, for is there's, there's nothing that is not already within his knowledge. There's no event or circumstance that he had not already taken into account when he planned out the course of human history. He knew everything that would happen before the foundations of the world were put in place. What does this mean for us today? Well, it means that we can sing so confidently the words we're about to sing from that glorious hymn in Christ alone, that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. It means that we can rejoice with Paul when he wrote, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We can speak with the utmost certainty in regards to our salvation. And it's not due to any amount of pride in ourselves or our own abilities. It is because there was one outside of us whose promises abide. So consider yourselves this morning. Realize how quickly you are to turn away to fail to obey God's commands. Understand how prone you are towards backsliding, towards wandering, and ask yourselves, what about us could merit God's everlasting mercy? What have we done that he bids us come and enter his presence, not as slaves, not as strangers, but as sons and daughters? And the answer to that question, of course, is nothing except this, that we place our hope and trust in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is in Jesus Christ that all of God's promises find their yes. And as long as we remain in him, we have no cause for fear. We have no reason to doubt that glorious promise that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In this, we can be sure. It's not just a faint hope. We know this to be true. So as I conclude this morning, if you just allow me to read the words of one of my favorite authors, pastors, and theologians, J.C. Ryle writes this in his book, Holiness, on our God-given assurance. He says, it cannot be wrong to feel confidently in a matter where God speaks unconditionally. 
to believe decidedly when God promises decidedly, to have a sure persuasion of pardon and peace when we rest on the word and oath of him that never changes. It is an utter mistake to suppose that the believer who feels assurance is resting on anything he sees in himself. He simply leans on the mediator of the new covenant and the scripture of truth. He believes that the Lord Jesus means what he says and takes him at his word. Assurance, after all, is no more than a full-grown faith, a masculine faith that grasps Christ's promise with both hands, a faith that argues like the good centurion. If the Lord speak the word only, I am healed. Wherefore then should I doubt? Friends, you have no cause to doubt the God of your salvation this morning. He is our rock. He is our fortress, our stronghold in times of trouble. His promises remain true, even as the world around us changes. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, in humility we come before your presence, recognizing that there's nothing in our hands that we bring that could merit your everlasting mercy towards us. We come empty-handed, wholly dependent on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that atoned for our sins and made it so that we could offer up pure worship to the King of kings and Lord of lords. So God, I pray that you would challenge us, that your word would go before us, leading us into greater degrees of obedience, that Lord, we would not fall, that we would not stumble, we would not backslide but Lord, that we would live faithfully according to the call we have received in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you have equipped us with your spirit, that you call us to dwell in fellowship with one another, that this is our our joy, not just our duty, but it is our joy to be in fellowship with other believers, that we may exalt your name together. Would you unify us by the blood of your son, that we may lift our voices unified and as one unto our great and magnificent and unchanging Lord. Amen.